I'm Asia Freeman, the Artistic Director of Bunnell Street Art Center in Homer, Alaska, and it's been my pleasure to host conversations for about 13 weeks, conversations that began when we started sheltering at home. Inspiration and isolation has become inspiration and adaptation. Although things have opened up in many ways, and others were only beginning to scratch the surface. For example, in this fantastic and powerful recent movement in social justice, taking a deep look at systemic racism in America. In this weekly forum, we're aimed at inspiring and empowering listeners with creative strategies for maneuvering challenging times. Listeners are always welcome to ask questions, pipe in, chat with us. I'd like to introduce our guests, Kima Hamilton and Dasha Kelly. Welcome to the two of you. Hello. Kima, oh, fantastic. Kima is a facilitator, a DJ, and a social justice engineer. From Pennsylvania to Georgia to Alaska and Wisconsin, he shaped his skills and artistic talents into signature work as a convener, a counselor, and an artivist. Kima has traveled as an arts envoy for the U.S. Embassy in Colombia, India, and Mexico. He's led writing workshops and wellness dialogues with school systems, social agencies, and correctional facilities. Kima leads discussion and healing circles for men with the Alma Center and is an on-air personality with Radio Milwaukee. Welcome, Kima. Well, thank you for having me. And welcome Dasha Kelly Hamilton. Dasha is a facilitator, a writer, and creative change agent. She is a widely respected educator, cultural producer, and founder of Stillwater's Collective, an arts outreach organization committed to building community capacity and confidences. She worked as a public relations account executive for several PR agencies and director of a citywide youth program for YMCA. Dasha has since gone on to serve as an arts envoy for the U.S. Embassy to teach, perform, and facilitate community building initiatives in Botswana, Canada, Lebanon, and the island of Mauritius. Welcome, Dasha. So thrilled to have you with us. Great to be here. It's great to see you. So Dasha, I know you as a novelist and a teacher, and Kima, I know you as a teacher, a slam poet, a DJ. You two are remarkable writers each in your own right, and you've collaborated for years to offer some of the most transformational artists and schools programs Benel has ever presented, as well as amazing workshops and cultural competency for teachers. A few years ago, you were the keynote speakers at my son's high school graduation in Homer, and then you went to do that in Seward as well. It's just amazing and fabulous, the impression that you've had on young people in Alaska and, you know, Milwaukee, you know, not too long ago, you started a new venture in Milwaukee called The Retreat. Mm -hmm. Before we dig into this project, I just want to check in with both of you on an artistic level. You know, we're living through an unprecedented time. And I'd like to invite each of you to share something that you've created, something you've written that feels especially true and relevant and alive today. I don't care if you wrote it a long time ago or if you wrote it last night. It's just a way um, that we can connect with you as an artist. So um, let's see, Dasha, would you like to begin? Sure. We're about to do a Zoom rock, paper, scissors right here. Okay. <laughs> I've got it. Um, this is a piece that um, was a, a, a Wisconsin, there were some of us, Wisconsin writers were invited um, to be a, to join this anthology project. And the prompt was to begin with a line from Emily Dickinson that begins with hope is a thing with feathers. And my first reaction to the prompt was really Emily Dickinson right now? Um, and then really hope right now. And it sat with me and it sat with me. And as events occurred in the span of seven days, um, this poem made itself very clear. Paintball pellets batter shoulders and thighs at 190 miles per hour. 
I count the purplish bruises and smile at the pulsed vision of us toasting and laughing, being vibrantly alive. The woman who pierced my nose rushed outside afterwards for a cigarette. Whether my nostril or her nerves were to blame, we both survived an ordeal that day. I don't think of the sweat on her lip or the tears on my cheek when my jeweled black nose disrupts canonical spaces. Agony delineates childbearing from child rearing. Pain is the anticipated toll, the impossible stretch of skin and orifice, wrenching of organs, the pinch and nip of nursing. I receive no pamphlets about the pangs of panic and impotence, the deep moral rupture when their ache explodes beyond your reach. A formation of police fired rubber bullets at my child. 200 feet per second in defense of hatred and spiteful ignorance. She raged back in protest until her throat rasped, her heels blistered, and she shattered into sobs once safe in our home, in my arms. They gassed and maced my baby. She marched again the next day, and the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. Hope is a bruise, a nervous smoke, and an unrelenting Calvary. That is so beautiful. Wow, that is powerful. Thank you. I have chills just now. Okay. Kima, share something with us too. Yeah. Dawson, I talked a little while ago, and I was in the uh, something old, something new, something borrowed. It's all going to be blue, mm -hmm. um, kind of kind of rhythm. Um, this this actually is a poem that was written uh, probably ten years ago, and it's it's just kind of every few months. It feels it becomes relevant again in this really like unfortunate way, um, because even writing it ten years ago was was in response of 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 you know maybe ten years before that of kind of cycling through some of the same type of stories and um, so the, the context of the poem is is specifically about Oscar Grant who was um, was killed by Bart you know Bart police in in San Francisco. Um, about about ten years ago, um, it was just, um, so so via Zoom, I'll spare you the loud dramatic freeze. Um, though I am frozen, he has still chosen death for my life. How could I have known that I would blow my last breath on this night here in the presence of Christ, Allah, Buddha, and Jah? I will be killed. And it may not be enough that they saw night sticks around my neck, still toes on my jaw, another bound hand, brown man, victim of law. But who cares? You who probably figure I deserved it. Shit, I got a few priors, so that makes me worthless. I descend from an ape, so I carry curses. And he will shoot me like the beast he perceives. There's no use in, ain't no use in no pleas. This is perilous. I can hear it in his voice. He's no longer at the crossroad. He's already made the choice, and that's to shoot, cuz. Shoot, cuz. All you got to say is you put that bullet in him because he reached for his waist. Reached for his waist? Yes, he reached for his waist. Don't tell the jury that. You've got a much better case. Don't worry about him. He's in a much better place, and we're the only eyewitness, so there won't be a trace. Now run along to your kids, kiss your wife in the face, and thank all your lucky stars that we live in such a place. Uh, not so fast, said the iPhone cam. <laughs> Human eyes can't do what the iPhone can. Got the whole thing on the widescreen pan. You don't have to look close. Right there are his hands. Turn up the volume. You'll hear the screaming man. Stop. No. Wait. Please. Uh, the four words that he'd repeat while kneeling in feces and pee. Well, those with souls can clearly see that he'd relinquish to police his manhood, his dignity, and his pride, just 
moments before he died. His mom, she bitched, she moaned, she cried to no avail because Holmes had lied. See, the police report the jury read said some bullshit. Uh, with no weapon, how could he have pulled it? It's very simple arithmetic. To explain that sick inside my pit, I get each time that I see lights on dim lit streets real late at night. Oh, sir, you empathize my plight. I hear you speak of equal rights, but will you have to tell your kids that some justice just is? Uh, bound hand, brown man. Thank you for listening. Bruce, Bruce. <laughs> ah, it's, it's so good to hear you. It's so good to hear you both. And really generous of you to make this time for this, this gathering right now. I had, I had written, tell us why you chose to share the piece that you did, you know, but um, I have a comment instead, which is like, you, you have been, you know, Kima, on this path, you've been sharing um, words of truth and justice for a long time in your poetry. The work that you're doing now, and I want to talk about that in a minute with the retreat, it just, it began a long time ago. It began work on your own. It began working with youth. It's amazing to just see this path um, unfold and, and, get, and get bigger. And, and Dasha, you know, I, I would love I'd love to ask you some questions too, and both of you about why you chose to share what you did, but um, tell us a little bit more about the piece um, that was inspired by Dickinson's Hope with the Thing with Feathers. Hope is your thing. Yeah. It was um, the, first, the first week of protest here in Milwaukee, and they, happened as they did and they have unfolded across the country. Um, and so I've got a, like many of us, this is a lot happening at one time. There's, there's still, hello good people, there's still a pandemic happening. So you've got Rona, you have a recession, you have the reminder of violent racism, um, and we'll have another day to talk about what we're still doing to the planet. So you have this layer, these layers of of stressors, um, financial, spiritual, emotional, artistic, professional, cultural, human, all of it. So it's this pressure. Um, so me personally, it was a lot to, I just found overwhelmed in a lot of ways of, uh, and just needed to really attend to how I am, which we often don't get the invitation or the space to do as change agents, as social justice warriors, as creatives, as women. Um, but sometimes you just can't. <clears throat> and so my daughter has grown up um, with a mother who's gone to all the things, all the stuff, all the places. Um, she's been to rallies, she's been to poetry shows, she's been to conferences, um, she's been to science, she's, done, she's been in tow to all of the things. And she took this initiative on her own. And not that that was surprising at all, but it was, especially for the folks that are in the space who are parents, when you see the plan working, and not that you're surprised that the plan is working, but you're just, wow, they just made their bed and no one had to tell them. Oh my goodness, they're figuring out how to get their own car insurance. Oh my, you are, and not only are you going to this march, she was intent on rounding up her friends. The girlfriend who has, whose primary focus is, is kicking up her Instagram likes. Um, and the friend who is too shy and doesn't, you know, she's rounding them up and, and bringing them along with. And, and it wasn't for, for a thing to do. So watching her just get together and watching, you know, mindful of what she's putting on and how they're heading out and what route is where and in between these errands. And she comes home and she's absolutely on fire. And not in that I'm so excited. Um, the first time she got back from Girl Scouts kind of on fire. Not that I'm going to be a, at one time she's going to be a professional cello. She's she going to have a cello store. You know, all the plans we have as children. Not this excitement and youthful on fire. She was enraged on fire. She was also really proud 
of, she said, I haven't been proud of my city before, but to be a part of this movement of all brands and stripes of folks. And there are people that she knew and many that she didn't, and she's in the thick of it. She describes standing right in, you know, right in the front line of where the, in front of the formation of police. So she described this, this electricity of being in this moment. And then she's crying because she was tired and she was hurt. And she was also overwhelmed with all the emotions and the truth in this moment that here you are, barely 20 years old, with a sea of other humans in mass because again, there's a pandemic going on. Um, taking all of these things at risk, standing within six feet of a, a formation of g armed, guarded police officers with military grade equipment to assault a peaceful march, and you get shot at and maced and tear gassed. So, everything that should possibly go through any person, but I'm watching my child. I'm watching my child take this on and she went out again and she went out again. And as I've done a lot of work with young people, I call them my sugar babies. And they're also now in their mid twenties, late twenties. Um, and another uh, team of them are in their thirties already. And they're out in these streets. So this sense of, I birthed one of them actually, actually birthed through my body. Um, but to have been a part of, of the centering of these other young people who are now young adults who are the who are the right now there was this there was that hope there was that pride there was that also reminder that we all have new places so in the space that i felt oh my goodness i've just got so much going on and i and i can't i don't have to i mean i have something i have things to do we all have things to do but i don't have to be standing at the front line toe to toe with the formation, not because I'm not willing, but we've got the right now generation that's out there doing that. For me, your right now generation may have other work to do, but mine was out there. Um, and so the mother of me was terrified and the citizen that I am was incredibly proud. Um, and so that piece at the end, that was where the hope came from, um, but also reminded was born from this, this space of challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I have to contrast like the energy and pride that you speak of as a mother, a daughter emerging to that kind of a stage. And then Kima, you chose a poem that you say, you know, you wrote about 10 years ago. And it reminds me of something I've heard, you know, quite a bit lately. Black men have been talking about feeling exhausted in the face of this again, right? This you wrote 10 years ago, still completely relevant, still yesterday, you know? And, and I've, shown up at, um, I've shown up at places and just done the poem with no setup and, and everyone's consciousness in the room will just attach it to the last time, right? And there's, there's always like a last time, a month or two ago, a month or two away, um, and, and I'm going to say like, those are the ones that bubble, they, those are the ones that end up with the notoriety and the evidence, right? Like the video to, to, to be, um, convincing enough for it to bubble up into everyone's stream of consciousness, right? So that isn't even including, uh, the ones that weren't recorded. Um, the ones where the first thing we do is, is research his criminal background, which, which is, is a strategy to kind of. I'm going to say it's a strategy, right? And and there's that's a it's fair to assess how a person moves through time and space before that moment, um, and we have to see that moment for that moment, right? And and in that moment, both both of the humans are walking into this moment with a lot of history. Um, I'm, I may be walking into this with with patterns that I've adapted based off of my my lived experience as a child, my lived experience in this country, um, and and this police officer, right? And this person of authority is also coming into this moment with a lot of history um, and, and a lot of expectations as it relates to how I'm, how I'm supposed to perform in, in, in front of them. And it is a performance for, for, for black men. Like my, my advice, like in all of the, you know, and, I, and it is for me, it's a, you don't, you don't get to not be involved is, is 
the relationship I have to my kids and, and my nieces and nephews. Um, we're, we're all in a continuum, right? We were all born into this narrative and we don't have the luxury to, to not, we don't have the luxury to, to live a full life and not do anything to, to move the needle. That's how I feel about it. And, you know, it was, it was uh, for me, I shared that poem for obvious reasons. Um, but like to like Bruce kind of popped in just just at the end, um, which and like Bruce, um, Farnsworth, um, Peter Porco, Brian Hutton, um, CC, um, Asia, like um, Margie and Homer. Um, those are those are like a network of humans that um, made it okay for me to share my story in spaces that like I've I've been an MC just all of just forever, you know. So, so the idea of, of wielding words to, to tell a story and make a moment happen is, was something that just, I think, instinctively comes to me. And um, getting involved with the Alaska Poetry League and getting involved in, in a space where, like, I'll, I'll share this. And I don't know if I, I know I've, I've never shared it with Bruce or even you specifically, but there are times where um, going to a poetry slam at APL or coming down to Homer and, and doing an event, um, when I come back into my circle, Right? Like I come back into my, my, my social circle, my, my family circle, talking to my brother, like the joy that I've always felt was that like, like me, me sitting around under the carport, having this conversation with the homies um, is at times needed to be able to make sure we're all supported and feel comforted in, in this journey. Um, but, but it's all, I always felt like a, um, like a fucking superhero coming back from, from a poetry slam where the whole room was full of white people. Right. And, 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 I, and I write about things um, that are that are a part of my lived experience. And I'm really intentional. Like I know, I know let's say um, I was conscious of the fact that moving into that APL space, um, I probably need to shift the cadence, even though I write to music. So most of what I write can very well go in a song. Um, but I realized like shifting the cadence, slowing down certain things and and. Um, was necessary to be heard. And if there isn't a, another room in this state, in this country, in this world that needs to hear me, it's a room with full of white people. Um, because the way this is all set up, that's, that's where legislation shifts, right? Like, like if, if I can say a sentence, if I can make a statement that will shift the hearts of someone in this room, they, they may work in municipalities somewhere. They may be in, in spaces where, you know, budget lines get determined and that's to me that that's been like a quiet um crusade for me you know like um because being in those spaces as one of the, one of the few people of color is, is rarely comfortable um i do feel safe you know but there is a difference between safety and comfort um mm -hmm. and as a part of like that that discomfort was always just really a part of what was necessary to be in spaces that could shift. Um, I say I live. I just moved back from Wisconsin, which is um, uh, Milwaukee is statistically the most segregated city in the country. Um, and and I'm and I grew up in Southwest Georgia, right? So what I just experienced there was really interesting because it doesn't show up like it shows up in Georgia. Like in my high school, there was a rebel flag hung on the water tower every morning of our Black History program. And the, and, and the interesting part to that, and, and even as a 15, 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, and 18 year old, um, it was always fascinating that it would keep happening, right? It was, it was really appalling to everyone and they would go up there early that morning and pull it back down. Um, but if you know this is happening every year, why, why isn't there a police car parked there, especially in a city with no crime? You know, so even in that, as a teenager, you see the, the connections, you see that like, um, that, that some of this is sanctioned, right? And so being in, you know, for me, sharing poems in places where you can go from, man, I didn't know, I didn't know that was a lived experience into allyship, which is necessary. Um, or if you're already an ally, the intention is to kind of move you in the direction of an abolitionist. Um, and, and Milwaukee taught me very clearly the difference. Um, there's a difference between an ally and an abolitionist. I think both are needed. Um, but but, we, but you have to be clear about where you are in the conversation. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely clear, right? And because I, I, I have to be clear so that I can set my expectations in a healthy space. 
Um, because I need, I need, we need allies, and I want to be clear that an ally is an ally, and then, you know, an abolitionist has a different tension with the 24-hour intention with the 24-hour rotation. So, um, I share that poem, and I, I share poems with the intention of, of, of moving, moving us along in the continuum. Um, not just white people, but I, I think, you know, I've been blessed. I've been blessed with the opportunity to, to be in, in front of predominantly white audiences most of, you know, my artistic journey. When the smoke clears, I think I'm, I'm okay with being defined in that way. Mm. Wow. That's just, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before we go any further, I, I want to ask you to, um, if you would just stop and, and um, kind of parse out the difference between an ab ally and an abolitionist for our listeners. I think that would be useful. Um, as I've, as I've experienced it, Asia, I think, you know, as I, as I've experienced it and, you know, ally energy is, is really important. Um, and I, and I think it's, and in a, in a, as a function, it's, it, it's there to kind of comfort, you know, to be, to be, to comfort, right. And to, to remind that, that we're not alone. Um, but there's a line, you know, like you're, you know, I feel like with an ally, it's about making sure that I'm that I feel comforted in dealing with the fuck shit, or I feel comforted while dealing with fuck shit. And I think an abolitionist energy is is cool addressing the fuck shit. Um, and I wish I had more eloquent language, you know. But that's um, that's how, that's how I see it. And I've and I've you know living in Alaska, living in Wisconsin, like I've experienced both. And um, I think Wisconsin has given me a clear because the thing about Wisconsin is, I mean, it doesn't show up like it does in the South. They call it Midwest nice, and and I think Alaska, if, if it isn't careful, Alaska could, could turn into a Milwaukee or Wisconsin, where like everyone is nice enough as long as you know what streets you shouldn't cross, as long as you know where to be at a certain time or what what cities not to go to. What, like as long as you know the rules, everybody's good and everybody's happy. Um, and I, and, and I just think Alaska has the potential to be that if we don't, if, if we aren't more, don't become more comfortable saying things out loud and, and challenging ourselves at times where, you know, because we, it is, it is a fucking, it, is, it does feel like a utopia up here. We're like, man, the world is great. Every time we turn around, it's a beautiful thing to, to see and witness. Um, so I, so I think viscerally, um, we stay in this like really, good juju kind of energy space and it's easy to forget that everyone has you know everyone doesn't have that experience from sun up to sundown right some people in their 24-hour rotation you know still have to deal with um, systemic racism in all the ways that it that it has a, the ability to show up i came across something recently to play off of that Kima, that um the the person was pointing out that ally is both a noun and a verb and that distinction between being an ally or being an abolitionist, the, and secondly, you can't deci decide that you're an ally, right? Someone, your actions, your work, someone will bestow that on you, and that's an ally to the Black Lives Matter movement, an ally to the LGBTQIA plus movement, to left-handed short people, and on and on and on. They will let you know if you are an allyship. Um, but the, the point that, that they made that was really interesting to me was the idea of ally is the idea of helping. And once you have the framework that you're helping, you've also given yourself permission to opt in and opt out whenever it's convenient for you. Whereas an abolitionist, it's more than just standing, in a, standing beside, it's making steps to forward towards something together. So that would was really helpful, I think, in terms of, of how to of how to consider the work as one or the other. And I think it, what Kima said is important. It's not to put yourself into a square, put put the round you into a square hole. So if allyship, ally dumb, allyism, allyness is where your work and your and your steps are, then be great at that. Be authentic in that. Um, but also know that it's not being an abolitionist. So um, like any great team, you need all of the 
points of thought at the table. The, the dreamer, the logistics person, the strategy person, the people person, you know, all of those folks on the team. So we need folks that are in alignment and giving that good juju. We need people that are doing the work. Um, and we are at a, a point now where it's about the work. So there are no more casual, forgettable conversations about what you already know. Um, so there's no more studies or research or theories that need to be articulated about the moment that we're in. You're gonna do something or you're not. You're gonna challenge your uncle or you're not. You're going to question that vote or you're not. You're going to examine the ways that you unintentionally advance this, this paradigm we're in or you won't because all of us are. Be very clear that white supremacy shows up in non-white people. The same way that patriarchy shows up in the way women behave the same. So we all have work to do. So extracting the, the knee jerk of guilt, extracting the defensiveness um, is the first step. And again, that's for everybody, but that's the first step in having actual conversations to just figure out what the actual work needs to be. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So you two developed something um, powerful called the retreat. And um, I'd love for you to tell us about it. I'm on your website, you state the human experience is biased. All of us with points of view and a story. Implicit biases are the conclusions and tendencies we don't actively think about. Still, our interactions can broadcast unspoken expectations and reveal unexamined terrain. The XM course guides colleagues and teams through an authentic conversation about the nature of bias, tools for collaboration, and benchmarks to align culture forward. And that's, I mean, wow, that's prescient. I mean, in light of the current social justice movement, it seems like you foresaw with knowledge and insight the tremendous need of our nation and our world to examine and acknowledge, to dismantle and reshape systemic bias. And a big part of that work we have found, because um, there's been different workshops we've done, the different conversations we've been in, so in pulling this all together into a, um, into this concentrated experience, then really what is the point? So like I was saying before, we're gonna to come together and share theories and put up a PowerPoint of, of social, um, uh, social psychologists and history points, yes, um, but to what end? Uh, so it really is how to bring people together to have a conversation. And there are a lot of small and enormous ones that happen in just leveling that playing field and leveling the expectations um, and presenting how much we have in common. And not just the fact that we all have a parent and we want love and joy and hope. Yes, the human condition, but by our, our biology predisposes all of us to make shortcut decisions. So we have found that centering just some of those facts make it easier for people to say, okay, well, you know what, there, there is this neighbor that I had where, well, you know, there this was this time I didn't know what to do with, or, you know, I never really quite understood how, and the more that we talk, and then we're able to introduce information as the conversation unfolds throughout the day. So what we found, again, is presenting information, but if you just throw information at people and you're not acknowledging or taking time to, to take in the, the learnings that they had before they got to you, rightly or wrong, misinformation or not, um, their own, th their affinities that they, that we have, I shouldn't say they, that we have, you're not really able to have a conversation because it's, because mentally all of us, your defense is to, is to <laughs> put up your Wonder Woman bracelets to concepts and ideas that go against things that you've always, always thought you've always known. So there's a lot of things happening in the session and figuring out for us was why conversations were unproductive, um, why people are resistant to the discussion and the ideas of change that came from it was really um, how we wanted to build that day. And Kima, what does it, what does it mean to you to design social justice? What does that mean? To make it, to make it, to make it uncomfortable and weird. Mm -hmm. Like, in that, you know, if you think about it this way, you know, in a physical sense, 
Uh, you can go to the gym, right, and go through the motions, but until it burns and until it's a little uncomfortable, um, you aren't you aren't necessarily gaining ground. And so I think with um, with these with this this conversation, I, I feel that. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to add this in there. Like some of it is like road trips and stuff that I've done with, you know, within within the like the poetry world. And Alaska has put me in some cars for a lot of hours in a row, um, sorting through these conversations and some of these things with with humans that I care about and I know care about me, which which is going to instinctively um, govern your word choice, right? And and mm-hmm. and how you kind of navigate it. And I think that that muscle has has been helpful. Um, and, and finding that space, like Dasha was saying, like finding that space for everyone to honor all of our truths in this moment, um, as, as, and, and, and being okay, being uncomfortable. I think, I think polite speak has gotten us here. Um, so polite speak is not going to get us out of, (laughs) out of this particular paradigm. And, you know, um, some of what, what was really interesting and we started putting this together, you know, a few years ago and, um, you know, some of some of my motivation was like I, I got I got I was I was put off of a Delta flight for for using the restroom um, a couple of years ago, and and the moment happened so quick, like the moment happened fast, like super fast, and you know I, I look back sometimes at at where what she would have felt in the moment the um the stewardess, and understanding like being fair about how we we're all been born into this narrative we all been affected by this narrative. Um, I, the, the way we're all socialized, um, I would cross the street if I saw me coming as well, right? And, and being able to say that out loud is a part of the conversation. Um, I, I've, I've also been, been programmed to see this as a threat, um, which is, which, which was our knee jerk. And when you understand like how our brains work, how our bodies, like our, our, body, our body's only task is to keep us safe. Right. So our, so we, so our memories are, are pretty much whack. Um, the way that we, we engage a moment, right. And the parts of our lived experiences that will, will, will be recalled in this moment is all around how we feel safe. So, um, I say that to say this, like self-preservation is instinct. So um, I understand now why sometimes it is hard to engage this conversation hard, like just head up, um, because you are challenging, like, you know, as as a as a white person in this particular paradigm, why why what sense would it make to your grandkids for this shit to shift? <laughs> you know, like like really being honest. Um, you know, if, if everything stays like it is, your, your grandkids are gonna be great. Um, it's only when things start to shift that 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 internal thing has to, to be challenged. Like like if if these shifts actually happen, what does that mean for for my generations down the road, right? And that's a fair question. And and it's self-preservation that that may that that may make it hard for you to see that all of us are thinking about our grandkids, right? Because self-preservation says, man, I got to make sure my grandkids are good, and with whatever bandwidth I have left, <laughs> we can we can make sure everyone else is good. Um, but the first order of business is making sure that I got you know there's some families that that know that five generations down the road their grandkids are going to go to college and have a house. Right, like how fascinating is that as a as a reality, um, and so so for me, I, the the idea of the retreat, um, the idea of of having the retreat being a place, you know, we we're really intentional about saying, you know, this is this is not a self a safe space, right? There are other there are so many safe spaces to have these types of conversations. You probably, if you need a safe space, you want to go pursue one of those avenues. Um, this is a brave space. Um, this is a space that you come into knowing that you're going to be safe, um, knowing that, you know, you're, you're safe physically, um, emotionally, whatever, whatever starts working around in there is a part of what we need to be working around. So, um, so even that, even that discomfort, um, even that discomfort is safe in the venue. Like we were intentional about creating, you know, a colored, a color palette that, you know, when you walk in, it's, it smells a certain way, it feels a certain way, um, so that so that all of our body systems just feel relaxed enough to to go into those tough talks. Um, and so, like you know, the conversations around bias and Im- implicit bias specifically, um, 
because I don't think that gets discussed enough. Like in 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 in, in the lawsuit that I that was subsequently filed after my you know experience with Delta, like um, it was interesting to learn that that the um, discrimination laws that are currently on the books are still from an era where it had to be explicit, right? And and and, that, and so many cases get settled that the case law in and of itself hasn't been changed. So the case law still says, you know, you have to overtly call someone a racial slur. You have to overtly, uh, like one of the questions that was asked is, did she send a text message to anyone saying that she was about to do something to this black person? And those answers are a lot of times no, right? Because in the, in the moment, I know what I felt. I know I could see what I could, it was confirmed Right, like, because that, because as you know, moving through this world safe, I my my emotional intelligence has to be top notch all the time. <laughs> um, so, so to know that, um, like, I felt the moment, and and I couldn't necessarily peel myself either, which was the other option of like, you know, I, you know, and it wasn't an aggressive like um, hard charge towards the restroom. At every stage, it was like a please, ma'am, I, I ma'am, please, please, ma'am, you know. Um, but that still, you know, she still saw this. And she still saw this disobeying her. And then one, 1,000, two, 1,000, the plane surrounded by cop cars and, and, and shit. And some of why I think it went viral is that once, once everyone started looking for the pictures with me with, you know, the guns and the pictures with me with the gang stuff, um, all they saw was pictures with me with kids and white people. And which was it, which was, like, that's why um, I believe it went viral. Right at a certain point, it's like, oh shit, um, what what is this? And then you end up with different news outlets, like looking through everything that's available online, looking for that justification of of me being snatched off the plane in that way, you know. And and um, that was implicit, you know, like that that was implicit. And you know, be, and being fair, like we all have it in us, and. You know, it's on some level, it's the, it, it has been the American way. Like, we created this paradigm. So, um, you know, so, so I, I think, you know, like, finding, finding a way to channel my frustration has is, is been really exciting to do through XM because um, we, we, we it's, it's strategically planned for um, upper management and, and administrators. So kind of humans that are responsible for other humans or setting cultures in certain environments. So, yeah, that's, that's. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're doing these workshops for, for um, corporate structures, for, um, for companies and, and um, are you, are they happening online? Is that how you're doing it now? Did you transition right into yeah, and you're carrying it on while you're in Anchorage now, Kima and, and Dasha. You're planning to join in Alaska as soon as that, as soon as that's possible. Yes, mm -hmm. and take the take the whole retreat concept with you as you come back. Yes. Wow, that's great. Will that will it carry on in Milwaukee too? Though, will do you know? Well, at this point, it'll it'll carry on globally um, the way the internet works. So yeah. we ha <laughs> uh, having a place, for example, our um, we are I think we're entering stage four in terms of reopening. So technically, we could open our doors yesterday, but because we we would only be inviting people to come and gather. You know, as opposed to being a restaurant, come get your food or a bar or a coffee shop. And we have all of those things, but they are in, they're, they're made available because an event is happening. So even though we could, it's not prudent, it's not safe. And we just really are, are in a space of rethinking um, how to how to continue brokering these conversations. So we moved as much as, as much as made sense to the virtual space uh, as soon as April. So we have, you know, the XM conversations, we have a dialogue that covers all types of issues, aging, um, entrepreneurship, blackness, uh, gender, uh, you know, through, through the lens of different genres of art. Uh, we have a poetry slam that we do digitally. So we'll be able to continue hosting and brokering those conversations and coming up with unique ways to 
package them um, and not so much to dilute the discussions, but these are discussions we've been having for a lot of a lot of a lot of millennia. Um, hope, faith, uh, trust, truth, and how to pack it in a way that gets people on board a bit more. Um, I wanted to say something too about designing social justice and in thinking of that as a term, I recently listened in on a lecture about design thinking and design theory. And it's a concept I'm familiar with in terms of how I, how I traditionally um, put together programs, traditionally put together outreach work. And it's in hearing this language, a lot of times you hear it's a horoscope or a lecture or a sermon, and now you have language for what you've always been, always been doing anyway. So this gives language to how we have approached this charge of ours anyway. And it says there's two ways to go about anything. So one is in problem solving and the other one is a design approach. In problem solving, you are aiming for something specific. You are aiming for a specific solution. And in problem solving, you have common sense. And what that means is you're working with the the expectations and paradigms that an external structure has given you and it also maintains the status quo problem solving is fed by necessity is fed by need and it is fueled by power the power to get this thing to make this thing happen a design approach on the other hand is you are navigating through very different from aiming at a target that says you already know where you're going Navigating through, there's an emergent opportunity. So it requires imagination, it requires collaboration, and it is only possible through desire and love. In this lecture, I learned that desire and design come from the same Latin root word. Desire and design have the same root. So when you're designing towards social justice, designing towards a future, designing towards any next thing, you have a general idea of where you want this thing to happen, you think, um, but you are, you are opening yourself and you're acknowledging that you, you as a person, you as an institution, you as a nation, don't have it all figured out. So you are working through all of the hard work of getting to an end that makes the most sense. So, so that was when we were talking about this, you know, the subtext for this discussion and the, the moment we're in right now, it is definitely design work. It is not pulling up the, the pamphlets and the plans and the organizations and the people that we've always gone to because they are embedded with structures that have not served most of us. So that would just be putting a dress on an old form that you already know is broken. So designing forward, we put the best of ourselves at, you know, at the, um, I won't say at the mercy, but as, as a source for how we're going to move forward, because designing relies, instead of power, it relies on strength. And strength is what's internal to an individual. Power comes from an external uh, designation. So that's already faulty. So, but if we all are able to rely on our strengths, we're already building a better thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. And Kima, would you talk about like some particularly um, exciting or successful moments in this work and or maybe some challenges on, I mean, it's, there's a lot of knowledge and experience and also a lot of bravery and, and vulnerability, I would mm -hmm. think. Yeah. Um, what, what just came up for me was like a, um, I work very currently, um, my day job is facilitating, um, you know, men's groups around, you know, and I work for a domestic violence program and our, our, um, our approach is, is kind of addressing and, and healing and resolving childhood, um, adverse childhood experiences that may create toxic patterns of, of reaction. Um, so we, we spend a lot of time in, in our in our in our childhoods, you know, in that work, um, there was a um, a mother. We were watching a documentary, and there was a mother whose son ended up in prison. Um, and 
what she said was, you know, he was in a cell where he had 23 hours in, one hour out for recreation, and he's in this cage within a cage type section. And what she said was she could not imagine, like until her son was in this situation, she could not imagine that a human brain um, could could think of creating a building where hmm. where, where has natural light, or like she like she couldn't fathom that our that as a species we even could create a design a building in that way. And what was always powerful for me in that moment is like, you know, she, she went from ally to abolitionist. Some of, some of what sent her in the trajectory was her son's lived experience. Um, but I think those, those moments are really important and powerful to me because it's, you know, we can create empathy. Um, like really, we can create empathy. All this shit is dissolved. Boom that quick right if we just everyone everyone has empathy right now like in an i dream a genie kind of way um everything will be resolved because we, we see ourselves in each other in ways that i don't we think we have enough opportunities to so um that was really powerful because i think as a you know again you know the way this is set up you know as a white middle-aged woman she may have access to certain rooms that wouldn't invite me in and and walking into those rooms now with the wherewithal that we are capable of doing some mean things to each other as humans, um, she she can address those things. But if you don't even if you can't even fathom or imagine that that humans are having certain lived experiences, you like you don't have you don't wake up in the morning thinking about addressing those. Um, so those moments are that just came up for me just because of you know of how how powerful like a lived you know. I say say the dash all the time, and we, you know, there's a lot of power in a proper noun. So if you can if you can attach an issue to a proper noun for someone that like that becomes real in their life, um, and and um, that's to me that's that's the game within a game. When when going into these really hard and and thick and dense conversations, is trying to find ways to tether it to a proper noun not force it and, and not even making the proper noun mine, right? Like you have someone in your life having a lived experience currently. Um, Father, Father's Day is, is triggering for me in that way after doing this work um, because they, you know, I have a lot of clients who will post Father's Day photos with their kids and then everyone will like, like it and put hearts on it. And man, you guys look good and have no idea what it, what it has what the gamesmanship that he had to go through to have his kids on that day or that weekend or that whatever, like there's a lot of, um, you know, and, and some of it, you know, and some of it is, is our doing as, as men and kind of maintaining things. Um, it does show up in family court, right? If we, if we buy into the paradigm that, you know, men are providers and, and, you know, women are, are nurturers. And when we walk into the family court saying, or have clients that walk in like, Hey, um, now, now that we both realize this is a toxic, toxic, romantic relationship, bam, let's, let's, let's dissolve that. Um, oh, I lose access to my kids too. And I just need to send a check. And, and at every stage we have to go, okay, cool. Um, and I, and I just think that that's another area where we, um, make a lot of assumptions and, and until it's connected to a proper noun in your life, you just kind of assume that everything is as it should be. So um, to answer your question, I think that's it's whenever we can, whenever, you know, I can attach the, the issue to a proper noun, I feel like some heavy lifting just happened. Mm. Um, and that the, the woman who just, like she just, she's, her words, she couldn't imagine that as a species, our brains could, could design a building with no natural light until her son was in that room. Wow. Thank you. Well, to bring this back around to art and um, the two of you as powerful, strong, courageous creatives, um, I, we talked about, um, this poem by Mark Bamuthi Joseph, amazing poet. Um, and, uh, 
the poem actually is not by Mark. He shared it. He, he, he introduced me to it. It's a poem by Nicole Seeley called Hysterical Strength. And um, I, I, wanted, um, I wanted to ask you, Dasha, if you'd read it. And I, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about it afterward. Hmm. Hysterical Strength by Nicole Seeley. When I hear news of a hitchhiker struck by lightning yet living, or a child lifting a two-ton sedan to free his father pinned underneath, or a camper fighting off a grizzly with her bare hands until someone, a hunter perhaps, can shoot it dead, my thoughts turn to Black people. The hysterical strength we must possess to survive our very existence, which I fear many believe and is treated as itself a freak occurrence. It's a powerful punch. Yeah. So, um, what, uh, what it makes me think about, and as a segue toward um, closing this conversation today, just for now, mm. it, and I say that because I very much look forward to continuing it with the two of you, um, wherever you are, but um, especially thrilled and delighted that you're coming back to Alaska, and half of you is already here. <laughs> <laughs> um, where... Where do you find that hysterical strength to do this heavy lifting that you do? I mean, you each lean into it in your own way. And I just, I wanted to ask you each to share that. Um, I'll go back to the design work. Um, it's, it's, having, um, it's having the faculty to try to make sense of how to try to make sense of it. So less of making, there's the work of make, of having it make sense to me, for me, for me and mine, um, and my sanity, my children. Um, but there's also this, oppor this opportunity to apply the way that I write, the thing, the stories that I tell, like Kima was saying, the audiences that um, are often in front of me, there's, there's a duty that's more than just reporting what is um, because we've been reporting what is again as a black American as a woman as a child of a, of a military officer as a wife as a mother we've been telling these stories and reporting what is but like Kima says unless you have a proper noun unless you are given a, a space of empathy which is not the same as sympathy sympathy you can feel it and go on empathy is something that sticks with you um so for me it's the joy of of wrangling these concepts these abstractions into a performance that takes you through the conversation about race and class and equity and everyone is smiling and talking at the end. It's working to do these, these sessions and you are putting in, you're creating opportunities for genuine conversation. And there's that joy in what you've invited someone to do. And don't, and don't, and I want to be clear, we, I'll speak for myself. I know Kima does too, but we grow with each experience also. There's a session that I do, I've done a hundred times. I am enriched every single time because the humans in the room are different. So that already changes the alchemy. So that is what I lean into. And it is a hysterical strength. And it is knowing that how I am and how I'm seen, there's a, there's a gap between them. So part of my safety and my wholeness and it took going through like, you know, youth to being really mature and clear is me being clear about that, this gap in between not being my problem. Where the younger version of me, I wanted to convince you that I was, and I wanted to make you feel, and I wanted to show that I was, and I wanted to talk about my degrees and where I went. No, I don't have to do that. Because there are other pieces beyond me explaining that that have kept, and this you could be just an, a, another black man, this you could be a white woman, this you could be a person with authority, there's always this gap. So that joy that on what I am, what I have the power to do is 
is to present what's happening in my head and how I see the world and knowing that if I'm intent on, again, desire and love of really informing and bringing people to a point of understanding together, that that's going to happen to the heart and the eyes that saw it. Thank you. And before we get to um, Kima's response, where, he, where, you find your, where do you find your historical strength, Kima? I just want to point out that there's been a great little side conversation, um, an inquiry about if the XM conversations are freely accessible. And because there are people looking for resources related to entrepreneurship that broaden the conversation to include more voices beyond typical white perspectives. And Kima pointed out that the next, just to email, um, for the next scheduled retreat, email Hamilton at theretreatmke.com. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. So Kima, help us um, for now just uh, close out this hour, if you will, with some, some thoughts about sourcing hysterical strength to do this important work. I think for me, it's, it's, um, there's a shame. Like I grew up in my, like my birth through, you know, 11 or 12 or so was in Philadelphia. And then my mother went home, which for her was Southwest Georgia. So, so it was kind of curated, I think, between those two spaces. So I have, you know, a lot of urban inner city energy in me and, and, and also like, I was just there a month or so ago before I came back up here with the, to see my mother. Um, and I also have a lot of dirt road Georgia in me as well. And and so down south, um, there's a uh, a saying of like, all, all, all my help comes from the law. You know, like not L-O-R-D, but there's like a L-A-W-R-D in there, like a law. And um, so, so my strength comes from understanding where I'm positioned in the continuum. You know, like I've, I've had the lived experience of living with my great grandparents for a minute for the last season of their life. Um, just going home for, I was home for three weeks. And it's, you know, I've been away for 20 years plus, um, but that felt like the first time I've been home because typically I just drop my bags at my mom and I'm making the rounds. Um, and this time I just sat out there and, and really got an appreciation for, for like the cemetery and the numbers that are on those headstones. And, you know, my, my great-grandmother was the daughter, well, my great-grandmother's parents, father specifically, was, was a child when slavery ended, you know? And we're just understanding how, like, it gets presented to us as, as, as history in a, in a really just kind of abstract way. But for me, just I have an intimate relationship to where I am in my family's narrative. Um, which, which in a specific family tree kind of way, um, and even as a, as a collective in the sense that, you know, white and black, we were all born into this bullshit, you know? And um, that's, that's so, so I don't necessarily feel like the luxury to live a, a whole life from beginning to end and not address it in any way. And I just think through language and, you know, whatever it is, like I, I just found a way to kind of weave my life's work into this conversation. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's where I find my strength is realizing that, you know, this is, this is all a continuum. There's a really great YouTube video um, that called, called what Beyonce taught me about race. Um, I really appreciate that particular, it's about eight minutes as a Ted talk. Um, but she breaks down um, that, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour theory. And she, she goes from like first, you know, first time, first slave that landed. And she, she did the math um, idealistically stopping at Brown versus Board of Education, right? Her, her idea is like, let's just say at that point, this, everything went like they designed it at that point and racial issues were resolved. Even at that point, mathematically, we were an expert 294 times over in the idea of, of white supremacy. And, and that, that number is also where I get my strength, right? Like, they, you know, it took, to, it, it took us a long time to get here. Um, going to take us a long time to get out of this. Um, I probably won't see it, so, so I won't stress myself as having that as an expectation. Um, I'm, we're in the continuum, so I'm going to do what I could do in my life um, and then die. 
you know, and, and not feel any pressure, not expecting to see a, a, a happily ever after. You know, I just think mathematically that's a, that's an unhealthy expectation. But I think we all can we all can move the needle, you know, through our personal family trees and, and then collectively whatever your social circle is that that Michael Jackson Man in the Mirror song is is doper than, than people realize, you know, like if you all start there, real shit. Like you don't if you start if we can start there then and the dominoes fall from there. Uh, mm. yeah. wow. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Thank you both so much. And I, I look forward to, um, you know, to connecting again and talking about how we can schedule one of these retreats for Homer folk. Get some of that dialogue going down here. Great. Thank you for making like space for this discussion. At people, or if there's any comments, anything that mm -hmm. you know, say, I'd love to be available for that for a little while. I just feel like we've been talking folks. Yeah, sure, sure. Thank you. Um, and, and thank you too, Kima, for responding to some questions that have come up in the sidelines. I appreciate Bruce and Claudia Haynes chiming in with some, some important questions. But yes, um, I'm going to... Um, close out the recorded part of this and just invite people to, to speak up if they'd like to. Thank you so much. And I wanted to say that next week, um, we will be joined by Dekaheen Meener and Melissa Shaganoff, um, a conversation called, We Were Not Discovered, What Should We Do About the Captain Cook Statue in Anchorage? So that's next week. <laughs>